so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you for tuning in on the America Out Loud Network. You feel like we have kind of uh, a heavy, uh, some heavy lifting to do? Yeah, with everything that's going on around us, I, I know that uh, I find myself wondering, okay, what can I do? I can stand here, I can wring my hands, I can, I can actually uh, wave my arms in the air and run around screaming <laughs> like the sky is falling. But I actually want to do something that matters. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. First of all, getting a little bit of a grip on what exactly is going on. We'll also talk about some common sense things that you and I can do. But before we go there, I want to tickle your ears with a, a little song that I ran across yesterday that just, I don't know, it's a, it's a kind of cool song. And hopefully this doesn't trip the algorithms on the various uh, social media platforms that sniff these things out. You don't own that music, so we're going to have to mute this, uh, this audio. But I want you to hear this this song that uh, I had never heard of it before. It's apparently uh, "Keep Your Rifle by Your Side." I think this should this could possibly be the national anthem of the Heartland. Give a listen and tell me if you agree. Keep your rifle by your side. Singing, oh Lord, this earth was made for us. Singing, oh Lord, this sinful life just ain't enough. So we'll take a stand, cause we must protect our land. Keep your rifle by your side. All right, that's all you get, just a taste, just a taste. But I can tell you, the more I listen to it, the more catchy it sounds. And uh, so I, I'm sharing that with you. I, I'm trying to remember the name of, of the group that made this incredible song, and yet they, they don't want to... Oh, it's Ubisoft. They disabled the YouTube comments on, on this song. They made a great song. They just don't want to admit it. Probably because there are a lot of people on the political right who are like, heck yeah! <laughs> even It sounds even better with a choir singing it. So, 
Just a weird little discovery that I found that I wanted to share with you. All right, let's get to the nitty-gritty. Let's talk about what's happening. And I'm going to start with a question. Got the heebie-jeebies? All right, let me explain. Howard James Kunzler, I'm sorry, James Howard Kunzler, writes for LouRockwell.com. He has his own website. He's, uh, he's, he's a great commentator. I like his ability to sum up a lot of all the different loose ends that are going on out there. And he does it in a pretty humorous fashion. But if you find yourself curious or at least, uh, you know, wondering, okay, what exactly are we up against at the moment? This is as good a recap as you're likely to find. James Howard Kunstler says there are roughly six months of nice weather to get through, meaning conditions that are favorable for action in the streets starring the shock troops of progressive wokery. Now, he says, everyone I know is walking around in a baseline state of nervous agitation. Are they beset by disinformation, or is it rather the reality of a cratering nation run by idiots and maniacs? Everywhere you look, calamities gather speed while the klaxons of alarm blare from all compass points. Got money? Well, looks like it'll soon be worthless. Wondering if Mr. Putin has had enough of Joe Biden's brainless effrontery to lob some hypersonic big ones in our collective face? Relying on that retirement account, you have no direct control over, while the financial markets wobble. Need to fill up the gas tank on your pickup truck twice a week? Can't find a new condenser to fix the failing fridge? Entertaining rumors of looming famine? Credit cards maxed out? Sheriff stapling an eviction notice on your door? Beloved younger brother declaring that he that henceforth they are your sister? Hearing that all those vaxes and boosters that you obediently submitted to might rearrange your DNA? James Howard Kunstler says these are just a few of the concerns zinging through the zeitgeist these late days of the Republic. And you're correct to be anxious about them, so at least don't worry about worrying. Just understand that the more events spool out in the direction of danger, the more you will be warned against disinformation. The good part is that now we know the identity of at least one person who's officially in charge of that disinformation expert, Nina Jankowitz. Nijank is what he refers to her as. New chief of Washington's disinformation governance board. Whose idea was that, by the way? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas Almey didn't seem to know anything pertaining to disinformation last week when grilled in committee by Senator Rand Paul, including two of the most notorious cases in recent memory. Did the Steele dossier include Russian disinformation? Almey said he was not equipped to answer that question. Ditto the question, now definitively settled, as to whether Hunter Biden's laptop stuffed with the grifting memoranda was for real. Of course, both of those matters were labeled as disinformation previously by his new hire, Nijank, who it appears is similarly unequipped to discuss the particulars at issue. But all this does is raise the parallel issue, which is how much depraved insolence is the public supposed to tolerate from its public servants? James Howard Kunstler says, My guess is we're nearing the end of America's Christian patience for being snookered, gaslit, lied to, bamboozled, and mind-screwed, especially as our nation gets gang-raped by the party of chaos. He says, Perhaps the solution is to go a little further down the Roe v. Wade path and make abortion fully retroactive a new and innovative way to cancel lives whose obnoxious presence in the world is a menace to the human project. Declare the likes of Almay and Nijank retroactively unborn, erasing their privilege to appointed office. 
The wire coat hanger probably will not avail in this procedure. Of course, it's all just hypothetical at this point. Meanwhile, several Supreme Court justices are under siege in direct contravention of 18 U.S. Code subsection 115, influencing, impeding, or retaliating against a federal official by threatening or injuring a family member. Now, the authorities are permitting angry mobs to moil freely outside the justices' houses. While many January 6th insurrectionists rot in the D.C. jail into a second year on misdemeanor charges that the authorities refuse to adjudicate, meaning that there is no authority in Washington, D.C., only a nameless, lawless simacrum of, as it conceived uh, of it, say, as conceived as, say, in the spirit of Franz Kafka. Now, James Howard Kunstler says hope abides that the November elections might set up a correction to much of this madness. The release on Saturday of Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, 2,000 Mules, does not provide a lot of encouragement about that. The party of chaos still has its apparatus of ballot fraud in place all over the country, and nobody seems to know what to do about it, although the remedy is pretty simple and straightforward, in-person voting with voter ID. The evidence of Dropbox video and smartphone tracking of the 2020 ballot stuffers in several states is right there, and nobody in American life appears to be equipped to do something about it. By the way, the necessary equipment consists of two plum-sized glands generally assigned at birth to persons of the male persuasion. Perhaps along with refrigerator condensers, the supply line for that is broken. But he says, first, of course, before the scheduled midterms, there's are there midterm elections, there are roughly six months of nice weather to get through, meaning conditions that are favorable for action in the street, starring the shock troops of uh, progressive wokery. Depending on where you live, he says, maybe that's another reason to feel those old heebie-jeebies creeping in on little spider's feet. I know you were hoping for something a little more optimistic. Hey, <laughs> that's... Uh, Okay, that's that's not quite as optimistic, but I want to take that and, and segue for a moment into the 2000 Mules documentary. I've had a chance to watch it, and um, from what I from what I'm seeing, it seems pretty clear that all the hoof hoff about uh, you know this is this was the safest, most secure, and honest and above board election in history. Not so. The documentary raises some very, very big questions, and um, I, I'm going to go into some more detail here. Actually, I'm going to let Jonathan uh, Mosley describe how the fact-checkers are working overtime right now uh, between ignoring 2,000 mules and trying to fact-check it. Well, you know, I, uh, they, they take some false assumptions and run with it. and There's a lot of sophistry right now trying to be used in, in the guise of damage control. But my recommendation is, if you haven't seen this documentary, watch it before you make up your mind. Maybe you won't be convinced. I know some really smart, good people who say they've watched it and they aren't convinced. But I also trust myself enough that uh, I, what I watched and what I saw, I don't know if it's the definitive smoking gun that proves this this was election fraud, but it certainly opens up the door to we should be asking a lot more questions about what really transpired, especially during that time period on election night when suddenly the the vote counting stopped. And then when it uh, resumed a few hours later, miraculously, there there was this abundance of uh, ballots being cast for Joe Biden. There are some very serious questions about this, and none of these have had a serious hearing. 
I know various challenges have been mounted in court, but you do remember, most of the courts actually refused to hear those cases. And it was usually one technicality or another. Well, we can't hear it because of this, but but actually hearing the case... No, I can only think of one court that did, and that was just on a a local issue in Pennsylvania. And as I recall, that court uh, still punted the ball and said, yeah, I think they they have something here, but they declined to to hear it as an actual case. So let's not pretend that this matter has been settled because all legal channels have been exhausted. They haven't. Let me share with you this article by Jonathan Mosley. Found this on AmericanThinker.com. Fact checker fail. 2,000 mules versus the media. Jonathan Mosley says, In a familiar pattern, left-wing fact checkers furiously try to hide the damning proof of election fraud in the 2020 election presented in Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, 2,000 Mules. But those fact checkers clearly did not actually watch the film. And he gives you some good examples. Ali Swenson, Associated Press, reprinted at U.S. News and World Report or at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, Jonathan Mosley says, initially, one should note that 2,000 mules is not a Western. It refers to the term developed decades ago of drug mules, people who carry illegal drugs for criminal cartels, such as smuggling drugs across the border. With 2,000 mules, the leftists desperate to hide voter fraud clearly only watched the free trailer for the movie and didn't spring for the $20 to $29 to actually see the entire film. Now, that film can be purchased from the Salem Radio website from Dinesh D'Souza on Locals or at the main website. I'm going to point out, too, that Andrea Widberg, writing for AmericanThinker.com, had a great article the other day, and that's where I found a link where I didn't I didn't have to pay for it. I hope I'm not cheating Dinesh D'Souza or anybody out of money, but I watched the movie without having to pay. So that's an option if you want to look it up. After mainstream journalists became discredited as biased left-wing propagandists, very suddenly this new fad sprang up. Fact checkers. And now the same journalists whom we stopped believing in uh, the normal news are suddenly believable because they call themselves fact-checkers. Jonathan Mosley says, but if there's anything that presumably a fact-checker would do, you'd think it would be to actually carefully read and analyze a claim point by point to determine its truth. He says, typically fact-checkers specialize in being distracted by a minor detail. I bet you've seen this before. So, for instance, a news story might report that Senator No Good smashed into a green-colored van full of nuns while driving drunk. And the fact-checker would then spend pages discussing how there is no evidence the van was colored green. The van might have been blue, so they're going to rate it as false. Now, True the Vote has done what the government failed to do. The organization purchased through commercial brokers the cell phone geo-tracking or geolocator data from specific cities in particular states where the election was decided. This is important. These were the swing states that, that miraculously made the difference for Biden. And they then analyzed the GPS data to show the paid mules who visited left-wing nonprofit organizations and then drove to many different ballot drop boxes on the same day. They did it all over again the following day, day after day, for weeks. 
So while ballot harvesting is illegal in the states sampled, in other words, one's allowed to deliver ballots from family members or a voter who's, for whom one is officially the designated caregiver. But otherwise, it's a crime for you to drop someone else's ballots off in an election drop box. But under no circumstances would one legally or legitimately do that again and again, day after day, for weeks or for months. Now, the fact checkers, or the fake checkers, rather, discuss the data as if these mules only made one trip on one day to just one drop box location. And again, Jonathan Mosley says they clearly didn't watch the film. Because the film explains that the analysis filtered out people who were driving past drop boxes or whose routines did not fit a voter fraud hypothesis. Only those driving straight up to a drop box carrying their cell phones were included. And the analysis considered the pattern of life routines of the cell phone users. Those going to work or going to shop near a drop box were excluded as opposed to those who spent only a few minutes at the Dropbox and then immediately turned around and drove on to the next Dropbox location. A person parked for a long time for an appointment or shopping, well, they would be excluded. Now, the fact checkers also skip over the fact that, at least by Jonathan uh, Mosley's estimate, perhaps around 10% of those mules active during the election season were also located in the middle of violent Antifa riots throughout the year two thousand, the year twenty twenty, rather. The documentary carefully explains how they filtered out the possibility of anyone dropping out or dropping off ballots for his family. Only mules who visited ten or more ballot drop boxes were included in the analysis. For instance, one mule visited drop boxes in six different counties. Now, ballots are different for different counties, congressional districts, and state legislative districts. So no one dropping off legitimate ballots would go to drop boxes in six different, or to, to six different counties. In other words, somebody who's dropping off grandma's ballot wouldn't visit 10 to 100 different drop boxes and then do this over again the next day and the next and the next. Now, Jonathan Mosley says the fact checkers tell us that geotracking is not that accurate. But oddly, the FBI is prosecuting peaceful, nonviolent protesters from January 6th, 2021, based on that same imprecise rather, geotracking data, allegedly showing people inside the U.S. Capitol. Whoops, never mind. So geotracking cell phone locations is precise, except when it isn't. Just depends on the needs of the moment. But he says it actually doesn't matter because true the vote set such a high bar that the data cannot be dismissed. Only those mules who visited left wing election related nonprofit offices and then went there straight to election went from there straight to election drop boxes were included. You got to admit that's that's pretty suspicious. Also, the film explains repeatedly how they obtained over 4 million minutes of official government surveillance video viewing the ballot drop boxes, promiscuously deployed due to COVID-19. Now, the trailer shows only a few snippets out of that 4 million minutes. Even the documentary barely scratches the surface of that ocean of data. Yet the fact-checkers analyze the surveillance videos as if the few examples shown are the only surveillance videos. That is, they dismiss the examples shown only in the movie trailer. Had they actually watched the documentary, they would have known that the same mules are showing up again and again in various surveillance videos at different drop boxes all over the city. Not just once, as in the movie trailer.
The four million minutes of video show mules stuffing dozens of ballots into drop boxes, not two or three. In fact, often we see ballots falling all over the sidewalk. The governmental surveillance video shows sometimes 20 or 30 ballots at a time getting stuffed into boxes already full. By the way, these surveillance videos also repeatedly show mules taking photographs of themselves, putting the ballots into the drop boxes, or just photos of the drop box itself. The only reason to take photographs of the drop boxes is that the mules are being paid and are presenting proof that they delivered the illicit ballots. Not to mention, this is all happening, or often happening rather, between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. Surely just a coincidence, right? Jonathan, uh, Jonathan, uh, uh, sorry, his name escaped me, Mosley, goes on to say that uh, the surveillance videos show mules wearing surgical gloves as they're stuffing these illicit ballots into the drop boxes. And then they remove the surgical gloves and they toss them into nearby trash cans. This is all caught on government surveillance videos. The film explains that this started the day after ballot harvesters were arrested in one state based on fingerprints on the ballots. In one case, a woman never looks at the trash can until after taking off her gloves, indicating that she had done it before at that same location. And finally, True the Vote concentrated only on specific cities or areas within the battleground states that decided the 2020 presidential election. The fact checkers, again, are off base. D'Souza's excellent documentary is a call for honest law enforcement, if there are any left, to conduct a full analysis of the entire country. And there is one indisputable conclusion, that is, this must be investigated in full. So says Jonathan Mosley, and I, I tend to agree with him. I mean, this, this illustrates the importance not only of doing your own homework, and, and i got to hand it to um, you know, Dinesh D'Souza and those who produced this movie. They really did a good job, and they went to the sources. They didn't just, you know, watch a 30-second trailer. Okay, I think I've seen everything I need to see. That's how the fact-checkers operate. I guess I'll take this moment to stump for the idea that, uh, whenever possible, go to the source. There's just no substitute for original research. There's no substitute for original sources. I'll hearken back to uh, back when when, uh, Ammon Bundy, and others uh, occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. Oh, the press was freaking out. Of course, you know, they were still a little bit freaked out over the fact that the Bundys had backed down federal agents at Bundy Ranch, you know, with the help of a, of several hundred um, supporters who showed up back in 2014. And, of course, nothing was really happening at that point. You know, there was a lot of grumbling. Well, that is lawlessness, and how could they do this sort of thing? But there was there was very little action being taken on the part of the federal government. And I'm saying that's that's actually a good thing. But when they occupied, when, when the Bundys and their supporters occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in defense of a ranching family up there in Oregon, you know, the, the terms like domestic terrorist and violent extremist, armed occupation, you still to this day hear it described as a standoff, when in fact it was never a standoff. Now, what happened at Bundy Ranch in 2014 when they went to get the cattle, that was a legit standoff, which thankfully peacefully resolved. But the occupation, it was peaceful from the beginning. 
And one of the greatest blessings of my life was to have access to Ammon Bundy or access to Lavoy Finicum. So if I wanted to know what was going on, I could go right to the source and and see for myself or or contact them. I didn't actually travel to the wildlife refuge, but I had uh, constant contact with them during that occupation. Now I hope that doesn't sound like a flex. Oh, look at me flexing my influence. I had. I'm just saying, if all I had to rely on was what the press was saying about what was going on in Oregon, or for that matter, what had happened in Bunkerville in 2014, I would have a woefully incomplete picture of what actually took place. So rather than just going on what somebody else is saying about the documentary 2,000 Mules, I'm suggesting go to the film itself. It's not going to take that much of your time, a little over an hour, but you will definitely be better informed for having done so. And you can make up your own mind. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde on the America Out Loud Network. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only 8 seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track, 
in an easy, effective, and very tasty way. Switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. All right, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the America Out Loud Network. Thank you for being concerned enough about what's going on in your world to actually take a little time to listen and examine some of the information available. I know there are a lot of voices out there, a lot of different people competing for your attention and and maybe even for your allegiance, but I'm just uh, very grateful to have your ear for a few moments. I'll try to make that time as worthwhile as possible. Now, of course, in the the days following the leak of the uh, Supreme Court's um, pending decision, which is very likely to overturn Roe v. Wade, we have seen some very strong reaction on the political left. I'm sorry, that's an understatement. That's like, yes, the Pacific Ocean can be a little bit wet at times. (laughs) They have been, the, the political left has been freaking out over this. And the protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices illustrates uh, more than just society's attitudes on abortion. It also illustrates a very clear case of inequality under the law. I'll explain more about that in just a moment. Now, I'm going to tell you, and this maybe this will surprise you, maybe it won't, I actually don't have a problem with people protesting outside of the homes of judges or politicians or police officers or those who work for the state the state being government writ large. I don't have a problem with that, as long as the behavior is peaceful. I think peaceful protest, the right to peaceably assemble or peaceably to assemble, I think is how it's put in uh, in the First Amendment. That's a, that's a very essential thing. There are times where it's necessary for people to gather to peacefully make their wishes known. Now, that's not exactly what's happening in the case of, you know, these Supreme Court justices who find their neighborhoods under siege and their family members concerned. And, of course, there there have been actual threats. People talking about, you know, well, maybe it's time that we go, you know, direct action against these justices. And that's that's a scary thing. But as far as people protesting, I really don't have a problem with that. When it gets violent or someone starts inciting violence, and unfortunately, this seems to be the hallmark of the political left. And I'm, I'm looking back at the last couple of years when I say that. Peaceful or fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. I'm sorry, that's nothing more than sophistry and bad sophistry at that to try to explain away, well, they burned down this city and beat these people into, a, into cripples and, you know, shot this person and killed him. But hey, other than that, it was really, you know, pretty peaceful, just, you know... People standing around, you know, demanding their rights be respected. Yeah, right. Well, Thomas L. Knapp has a great article on the uh, the injustice, or basically some animals are more equal than others, as we can see by these protests outside the homes of, of uh, Supreme Court justices. So listen carefully, because you might think that this column is leading you in a direction that it's not actually trying to take you. He says, on May 9th, the Hill reports the U.S. Senate passed with unanimous consent a bill to formally allow the Supreme Court of the United States police 
to provide around-the-clock protection to the justices, family members, in line with the security that some executive and congressional officials get. Now, while sponsor John Cornyn of Texas justified the action on the alleged threats to the physical safety of Supreme Court justices and their families, the real reason for the bill is no secret. In the wake of a leaked draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade, ordinary Americans started showing up to protest outside the justices' homes, cueing immediate howls about the sanctity of their privacy. And Thomas Knapp says, wait, what? Even if one considers the interests of unborn children more important than privacy, he says there's no question that privacy would be a casualty of the ruling. It would allow state legislatures to ignore privacy in at least two areas, women's uteri as well as doctor-patient relationships. Now, if those areas of privacy are less important than the sanctity of life in the eyes of abortion opponents, how is the privacy of Supreme Court justices and their families more important than, as the First Amendment puts it, the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances? Well, Thomas Knapp says the Constitution itself doesn't answer that question. To find out what we need, we must instead turn to George Orwell's Animal Farm and the modified version of its utopian scheme's Seventh Commandment. Remember this one? All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So Knapp says your, your right to protest the actions of very special, important people, like Supreme Court justices, is subordinate to their right to not be annoyed, embarrassed, or even in the slightest manner inconvenienced by such protests. Now, if you thought you were reading a column about abortion, he says you were wrong. For that matter, if you thought you were reading a column about privacy, you thought wrong. He says you're reading a column about equality under the law. This little teacup tempest is just the latest in a long list of demonstrations that no such thing exists. Since the 1980s, the America's very special important people, in other words, the political class, have availed themselves of a fiction referred to as free speech zones. They go where they wish and say what they wish, but mere mortals like you are restricted to saying what you wish in locations far removed from them. Some states have even passed laws forbidding disclosure of the addresses of very special important people, politicians, judges, police officers, to, to the mere serfs who fork over those very special important people's salaries for the privilege of doing as those very special important people demand. You got the picture? They get to run your life down to the smallest detail, barge into that life at will, and cage you or kill you if you resist. Now you get to complain about it, at least for now anyway, so long as you only do so in places where they won't notice and pronounce themselves offended by your gall and temerity. Dang. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a pretty straight-up uh, way of looking at it. So don't, don't lose sight of the forest for the trees, right? Does the political class really deserve that, that kind of protection? You know, this is the thing, and I know there are people on both the left and the right who will disagree strongly with me on this matter, and that's okay. I've been disagreed with before, and somehow we survived, but uh, all of us survived. 
But I think there has to be a degree of accountability. And, and, and I have to ask, if, if we want to sequester all people in public positions of authority behind, you know, armed guards or gated communities or, you know, fortresses otherwise not afforded to the citizenry, what exactly are they doing that makes their job so dangerous? I think this is probably one of the biggest eye-openers for me as to, well, does government really work for the people? Sometimes I hear people say, well, Brian, you need to relax. We are the government, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, Abraham Lincoln coined that phrase in his Gettysburg Address. A lot of people have run with it. But I don't think for a minute that that accurately reflects the relationship that you and I have with government. If that is the case, I mean, it's possible I'm wrong, but... Could you point me to someone, an average person like you or me, who has actually stepped up and made a change in public policy? Now, you might be able to find one or two examples, but I think if you were to look at the bulk of public policy that's being made, you're going to find that the influence that's being wielded is coming primarily from special interests. Now, that doesn't mean that all special interests are bad, necessarily. I know there are a number of uh, different uh, public policy institutes, think tanks, if you will, in the nonprofit sector. And they seek to influence public policy. And they're very open about this. You know, that's what they do when the state legislatures meet. They, you know, these these public policy institutes are there to promote what, uh, what is in accordance with their values. But that's a far cry from the average citizen. You know, we are the government, right? You and me, we're the government. Can you think of anything down to the most local level that you have the ability to affect or to influence? And again, this is going to vary from place to place, but for the most part, the people who have the least influence on what their government is doing at any level are the average taxpayers like you and me. Lobbyists have more influence The special interests that employ these lobbyists have the influence. Corporate America, as you can clearly see over the last couple of years, has the influence. Is it any wonder why so many laws end up favoring, you know, these uh, these special interests or these corporate entities? It's because they're willing to partner with government. But let's not mistake, you know, our influence as individuals for what they're doing. I mean, I I don't know a nicer way to say it, so I'm just going to be blunt. We've legalized bribery. We've made made bribery and corruption legal, and that's just part of how the political process works. But if government was really operating in our interest, I would think we would have far fewer concerns about the ruling class, the political class, the very special important people, as Thomas L. Knapp puts it, having the guts to just barge into our lives and tell us what we have to do in every instance. And again, if the last two years haven't opened your eyes to this, I don't know what to say. I'm assuming you probably already have your eyes wide open. You wouldn't be listening to a program like this otherwise. It would, it would be too painful. All right, let's move on. So this is here's another one that's kind of getting my attention, and I'm not sure how seriously do I take it Right, I don't want to. I don't want to promote fear, but as I'm hearing about this growing baby formula shortage, I am getting very concerned. 
Now, part of this has to do with the fact that I have a grandchild due any minute now. Of course, this is uh, for my daughter who lives over in Europe, where things are already very much in short supply. She says cooking oil. I haven't been able to find it for weeks in the grocery stores there. But infant formula, wow, this is, this is starting to get serious. I've got an article here from Laura Rosen-Cohen. This is from the Brownstone Institute. The baby formula shortage is serious. And this is her take on it. She says, before I had kids, I thought breastfeeding was the most natural thing in the world, and it was something mothers just instantly knew how to do perfectly once the baby was born. I would sit with my calm little cherubic pink baby at breast, marveling at myself at the very thought of feeding my precious little one from my own wonderful breast milk. What a wonderful, natural, and serene breastfeeding goddess I would be. Of that, I was sure. But she says, that was one of the first of many, many things I was completely wrong about when I became a parent. Thinking I would be able to learn how to play the guitar and learn Spanish on my first maternity leave were some of the things I cannot believe I thought I could do while taking care of a baby. It somehow completely did not compute that taking care of the newborn was pretty much the only thing I would be doing or could possibly be doing 24-7. I had no concept of how a precious tiny little newborn could wipe out two newbie parents so easily and for so many weeks and no clue how hard physically and emotionally draining breastfeeding could be. Yes, it was convenient and free, But she says, nobody told me about engorgement. Nobody told me about cracked nipples or how exhausting a newborn's two-hour feeding cycle could be. She says, I breastfed for a number of months and I'm proud of doing so. But then I started supplementing with formula. Many women cannot breastfeed for myriad reasons and shaming them is particularly repugnant. Now, she says, my kids are older now, but I've been thrown back into thinking about feeding hungry infants and toddlers because of the acute baby formula shortage that's hitting North America right now. And nobody in any position of leadership in America or Canada is actually talking about this horrifying situation. She says the only people I see talking about it are mothers frantically searching pharmacies and online delivery services from their homes, placing online order after order, only to be told that their orders cannot be filled. Now, this is 2022. Why are American babies and toddlers at risk of starving? Where are our leaders? What's going on? Well, here's the explanation that the Wall Street Journal offers. Quote, there are two reasons for the shortage. Supply chain issues caused by the COVID-19 pandemic have made baby formula harder to find for months. Now, I got to hit the pause button here for a second, okay? Because there's, there's a falsehood here. It's a minor one, but it needs to be corrected before we go forward. The supply, the supply chain issues were not caused by the COVID-19 pandemic so much as the response to the pandemic. There's a difference. You're not going to blame this on the virus. It's on the people who made decisions of how to react to that virus that have set in motion these supply chain issues. All right. Unpause. The shortage worsened after Abbott Laboratories, a major formula manufacturer, voluntarily recalled some products and closed a plant where the products were made in Sturgis, Michigan. The Food and Drug Administration is investigating consumer complaints related to four infants who were hospitalized, two of whom died. A fifth complaint was also filed, but the FDA said there wasn't enough information available to definitively link the illness to the recalled formula. The agency said Chronobacter sakakazi, no, sakazaki, that's it, a germ that can be deadly in infants, was detected in the Sturgis plant, but not 
in its products. The FDA said in a statement that findings during its inspection raised concerns that powdered formula made at the Sturgis plant carried a risk of contamination. End quote. That's the end of the Wall Street uh, Journal's quote. So there we go. Lockdowns again. The actions without precedent broke what we previously believed to be unbreakable. And we're still feeling the effects, nor is it surprising to see the FDA's regulatory hands mixed up in this, regardless of whether the recall was or was not justified. Now, again, just as an aside, my understanding is, I don't know if it's the Sturgis, Michigan plant, or if it's another plant uh, that creates baby formula, but I've read multiple articles in the last couple of days that the largest formula manufacturing plant in America has been shut down for the last three months by the FDA. So I don't know if that's if that's the same one, but you would think that would be enough time to resolve whatever concerns, especially you know where where what's at stake here is the nutrition of a number of newborns. Now going back to the article here again, Laura Rosen Cohen explains it's not enough to just blame supply chains or to assure parents formula producing factories are working twenty four hour shifts to try to fill demand. And that's because 40% of America's baby formula is out of stock. So this is actually an emergency situation. And it's not just an American problem. She says it's affecting Canadian families as well. She is writing from Canada as she writes this article. This is a real health crisis. And she says, we know why it happened. But why aren't more people talking about it and doing something about it? Why isn't any politician or company stepping up for North American babies? I'm sorry, Biden administration. We're working on it just isn't good enough. She says American airwaves have been burning up over the past several weeks in the wake of the Supreme Court leak on Roe v. Wade. Politicians on both sides of the aisle are everywhere talking about abortion. And while both sides of the abortion debate churn out articles, demonstrate, put out social media posts like there's no tomorrow, and fundraise for their cause, there are living North American babies that we all need to be worried about right now. And this shouldn't be a left-wing or a right-wing thing. It shouldn't be Democrat versus Republican. Left-wingers and right-wingers all have babies and toddlers, and those babies, grandchildren of those political left and right, will be starving soon if our leadership doesn't get its act together. For the past two years, our governments demonstrated their extraordinary powers and their willingness and eagerness to flex their extraordinary muscle under the guise of health policy and fighting covid They mobilized national and international bureaucracies and agencies, increased surveillance, encouraged unprecedented censorship, ramped up vaccine development and manufacturing, curbed our free speech, our mobility rights, our right to assemble, our right to practice our religion, and our right to dissent. So Laura Rosen Cohen says, there is no shortage of political power on this continent. Oddly, for the most righteous cause of infant hunger and starvation, there is no political will. That's the astonishing reality, and it's anti-human, and it's terrifying. You would think that in an allegedly civilized society, babies and toddlers going hungry right in our backyards would be a nonpartisan issue and a societal priority. She says, sadly, if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Babies don't know how you voted. They just need us now. And she says, woe unto us. And pity the children. Now, hopefully, I'm not reading more into this than I should. 
But I would probably differ with her just slightly in terms of, you know, what we need is politicians to get off their butt and do something. If they're going to do something, then my recommendation would be, if you want to solve the problem, get out of the way. If it's the FDA that's really keeping the the largest uh, baby formula manufacturing plant in America shut down, get out of the way. I mean, unless there, unless you can show there's a very clear danger here and reason why they should not be making formula. I'm just hesitant about looking to politicians as any kind of a solution because the, the political solutions have, have a really bad habit of perpetuating the problems that they set out to solve. I mean, it makes sense, right? Well, we're going to pay this program uh, and the people who administrate this program will be making, you know, we have this many hundreds of millions of dollars available every year in the federal budget. You know, if your job is to be paid to work on a problem and they're going to pay you well, which, you know, some some kinds of government work do pay extremely well, well, you can be damn sure people are going to make sure that that problem is around for a long time because it's job security. Now, there's another alternative here, and and I'll just touch on this briefly before moving on, and that is... I know some people were paying attention ahead of time. In fact, a good friend of mine was telling me about his mother um, stocked up on, she doesn't have small infants in the house or even grandkids running around at the moment, but she saw the need to stock up on baby formula, all different kinds of it, a couple of months ago. Now, I know a lot of people are like, well, was she just going to do it to gouge people, you know, to raise the price and sell it back to them at a, at a you know, inflated price? No. Something whispered to her, this is going to be needed. And so she grabbed a bunch while it was available, while it was affordable. And now she has it and is helping actively within her church congregation, within her neighborhood, within her circle of influence. Parents who are otherwise starting to panic because they can't find baby formula for their little infants. The lesson I take away from there is, Maybe not so much a political one, but how much better a place would the world be if we all had that kind of awareness that somebody might need this help? And it may be baby formula, it might be something else. I remember in the early days of uh, the lockdowns back in 2020, Maybe you can recall there was a pretty fair amount of fear that went along with those because people didn't know how is this going to shake out? What's going to happen? What are we going to do? In fact, that's when we were actually seeing empty shelves at the grocery stores because people were panicking and they were, you know, grabbing whatever they could find. Looking for yeast, looking for mason jars and lids. Good luck. Looking for milk. Sorry, it's all sold out. Toilet paper. Sorry, we're taking numbers here for people to fight each other in the toilet paper aisle. The best approach that I saw to bring that fear down to a manageable level, if not do away with it entirely, was to start looking around for people in your circle of influence. Now, in my case, this would be my immediate neighbors, the people who lived on all sides of me. My wife and I reached out to those neighbors and just asked, is there anything that you guys need? As we go to the store or if we have some, if we have extra of something, is there something that you guys really need? Now, one neighbor actually uh, hadn't had a chance to get to the store. And uh, as I recall, meat sold out pretty quick, too. People want to stock up, have plenty of meat in the freezer, plenty of protein to draw from. 
so they hadn't had a chance to go buy meat. Well, it just so happened I had enough and to spare, so I helped to stock up their freezer. Another neighbor came to us and said, hey, I was shopping around and found they were trying to get rid of these bananas because they're, they're getting ripe quickly and they need to be used. Do you guys want bananas? And they gave us a case of bananas, which my wife then separated up and froze, you know, and it worked out beautifully. But the key is we were more focused on helping each other, looking for needs, and, of course, keeping an eye out when we went to the store. Oh, you guys needed diapers. I noticed they had some in your kid's size, so we grabbed a couple extra packages. It was an awesome feeling to be able to meet each other's needs. And it didn't require any kind of a, uh, you know, government intervention. Now, let me shift gears for a moment here, and uh, we'll talk about the supply chain crisis and how it has a cause. This is from Justin Hart, published on the Brownstone Institute. He says, there's no Cliff Notes version of why we're experiencing these supply chain issues across the world. A host of influences have combined to create a massive disruption to everyday life and the things we buy to sustain it. Primarily, however, he says the problem traces to the shutdowns from more than two years ago, which created unanticipated shortages that will likely get worse. In fact, baby formula is just one of those things. His wife Jenny was on the news recently discussing the supply and how it impacts us. His wife actually wrote an article about this for the Federalist and noted the Biden administration has been almost silent on this issue. And in this case, Justin Hart says, you know, we should hearken back to the uh, toilet paper experience that runs on toilet paper for the last couple of years. He says, after talking to a few people in the know, I came to realize that um, one of the things that, that took place was half of people or people do about half of their business at their businesses. Business being in quotation marks. So the distribution of toilet paper for commercial developments involves industrial production of the paper we've come to love. Not necessarily your soothing bear mascot quality, but rather efficient large quantities packaged into large reams, which janitorial staff then mount in stalls in massive dispensers or efficient gizmos holding multiple rolls. Now imagine you're an executive down at fictitious TP supplier Wipe World. And the call comes in for the shutdown and you have some serious decisions to make. Production managers at the big roll mill, your supplier for those industrial reams of TP, have shut down and will eventually furlough most of the staff. Your shipping contacts go into default. Trucks with slabs of TP rolls tightly wrapped and ready to be dispensed will be called back, maybe even mothballed. The proverbial target of your product is about to hit the fan. Now, on the plus side, it turns out the profits on the consumer side of Wipe World are going to be just fine as demand outstrips supply. And you stand to make a good profit if you can shift manufacturing to meet the new demand. The marketing team is way ahead of you. They're actually pitching a product called Wipe Forever, which comes with a freestanding mount promising you an entire month's supply of TP in one massive roll. Essentially, you repackage the industrial stock into a consumer-friendly motif. Actually, if you want to Google Charmin Forever... Just in case you think he's kidding, that's that's apparently a thing. Now, the TP shortages went on for months. They would come back again and again throughout the last couple of years. But the impact of the plumbing of the world doesn't stop there. For instance, Michael Hurtado spent most of his time during the pandemic flushing toilets and running water at the large Ahern property off the Vegas Strip. See, the fear was that as rooms stood empty, the water in the toilets and sinks would form bacteria and spread another set of nasty bugs when reopened. 
Now, this same scene played out across every business building, theme park, and college dorm. Engineers and janitors, those essential workers, spent their days tending to the loo, mining the sinks and showers on every floor in every building. And they did this not only to avoid the impact of stagnated water, but to keep the plumbing going at all. Every park, hotel, skyscraper, business office is designed with an anticipated amount of water flowing through the infrastructure. If and when that water stops, it can cause serious damage to an entire city's waterworks. And what's more, those pipes and sewage heroes had to deal with another blow from the domestic side of the equation. In some municipal locales, clogs were up 50% as germ-worried households, in other words, all of us in March of 2020, amped up their cleaning habits and occasionally flushed those ever-present handy wipes down the john. That practice doesn't end well. So, Justin Hart says a national shutdown leads to a run on toilet paper caused by a sudden drop in at-work use of the bathroom, leading to massive manufacturing rework, rather, supply chain shifts, and a janitorial staff forced to walk the halls of vacated buildings like Jack Torrance from The Shining, simulating a proxy population doing their business in order to keep everything from falling apart. All work and no flushing makes Michael Hurtado a very dull boy. Now it's baby formula. And Justin Hart says, this is just the beginning, folks. Stay tuned. I know that there are some potentially serious shortages on the horizon. And I'm not going to pretend like uh, it doesn't concern me. Yeah, I got mine and nothing going to scare me. It concerns me because there are a lot of innocent people who I think are going to feel the pinch because of this. So again, I'm going to hearken back to the idea, prepare as best you can to take care of you and your family. And if you find yourself in a prosperous situation, if you have the means to do it, you might want to consider preparing in such a way that you are in a position to help other people around you. And it could be simple things like baby formula. It could be things like diapers. It could be things like toilet paper. I don't know. Use your imagination. But be a problem solver rather than part of the problem. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty.